Hey, Kev, let's let's follow this trail over here. This looks like there might be something waiting down there. All right. Hey, wait a minute. Do you hear that? Yeah, I thought it was just me. What the heck is that? I don't know what that is. Whoa, do you smell that, too? That's unbelievable. Hey, look. What the? Hey, look, those, those branches are moving over there. What the heck is that? Holy cow, is that what I think it is? Look at that thing. It, oh my god. It's a freaking Sasquatch. Welcome to the Bigfoot Terror in the Woods Sightings and Encounters podcast. My name is W.J. Sheehan, and I am the host of this show. If you don't know me, I've written a series of books entitled Bigfoot Terror in the Woods Sightings and Encounters, nine volumes currently at Amazon in paperback and ebook format, and volumes one through eight are at Audible. So if you're an audiophile and you like to listen while you ride or while you work, pick up a copy or two there and you'll be doing me a great service. And now, may I introduce you to my brother and co-host, KJ Sheehan. Kev, how are you? I'm good. How about you, Bill? Well, Kev, as you know, while we're recording this podcast... I am in the teeth of this snowy nor'easter up here on Long Island, and it is freaking brutal. <laughs> it's still snowing, huh? Well, <laughs> well you probably can't tell because they said on TV it's so windy up there, too. Yeah, we have gusts to uh, 45 miles an hour, so that's blowing the snow off the trees and the rooftops and everywhere else. And uh, thankfully, we're not in the heavy banding. You know how in a hurricane you get those outer bands? Oh, I know the outer bands here yeah. in North Carolina. <laughs> yeah, now, and out east, uh, they're getting some bands that have been hitting them consistently. Where they say they're getting three to four inches an hour. Holy moly. Yeah, of snow. So uh, I think I'm at about a foot right now, but it's cold and blustery. Uh, so a little later on, I'm going to get out and, uh, take out the snowblower and, uh, begin the wrestling match with, uh, <laughs> starting to clear things out here a little bit. Well, be careful. Uh, be careful with that. Don't overdo it. Yeah. I kind of really, when I go out there, I kind of pace myself. I'm almost a little lethargic, just kind of moving and, you know, like working my way through different areas and little projects and once i get the cars running i use them as my little uh shelter for five or ten minutes you know i get in the warm car and oh that's a good idea yeah yeah just relax but i know I uh those big snow blowers with a lot of snow that could be like wrestling with a bigfoot you don't want to you don't want to push it too much yeah and uh you know a little uh shout out to the folks at toro uh, I bought this, I had an Arians snowblower for a number of years, and uh, I bought this Toro, and the Toro has those touch controls on the handle to help you steer it left and right. Oh, cool. And uh, I also learned from the Toro that 
The Aryans, there was no throttle set back on it or like a governor. Uh, you could run that thing wide open, half throttle, idle. Uh, and there was no real instruction as really how to use it. And I used to blow shear pins on that thing all the time, which is just a nightmare. And uh, the Toro, I'd say it runs wide open at about 50%. And I used to think, wow, you know, you're not getting many revs out of this thing. But it's not about the speed. Uh, it's the consistency. And this thing just... Works the snow, throws it out, uh, and I've learned using these machines that slow is better. You know, like you don't need to go at speed. No, well, the last thing you need, the last thing you need is those things breaking. I remember when I lived up there, and I used to work with some of our friends, Bill, that had the business of moving snow in the winter time, and they yeah. dropped me off over by Islip Airport with a big monster snowblower to clean all the sidewalks. You know, usually in the middle of the night. At some of the office parks over there. And those things, like, when they went, you know, you did not want to break one of those shear pins. Because we had to fix them out there, too, in the middle of the night. You know, your hands are frozen. It's 20 degrees and windy. And it's like, what a nightmare. Yeah. Yeah. And they're not easy to find or locate to pop them out once they break off. (laughs) No, no. Oh, my God. All right. Yeah, well, so- here, Bill, in North Carolina, we have our own what we call Snowmageddon. <laughs> <laughs> and we we were supposed to get one to four inches, which we did get about a week ago. And that was a lot of fun, actually, here. Um, but we just got a dusting. And it was interesting. We woke up in the middle of the night and we looked out the window and it was snowing like crazy. But it must have only snowed like crazy for 15 minutes because it was just a dusting. Unfortunately. Wow. Unfortunately. I wish I had just a dusting right now. Well, you know, oh, with us, goodness. it doesn't stick around. You know, it's it's here for a day and it's gone the next day. So we we like it. And we only get it a couple of times a year. So, Yeah, yeah. So what do we have today, bro, with our cryptids in the news and other oddities segment? Yeah, we're, we're going to talk about uh, an astrophysic phenomena that's going on in the news that you might have heard about. So this is uh, kind of more uh, into the unknown of space, which, you know, we've talked about on the podcast, Bill, as kids. Uh, and now where you and I are always looking up into the sky and wondering what's going on. And I'm always fascinated uh, at how big, uh, you know, the celestial world above us is. And this yeah. one's kind of interesting because it's happening not that far away from us, uh, but it's uh, something that people didn't even know existed, like it existed only in theory. So no, folks, I'm not talking about a giant meteor that's going to hit the Earth. I know that was in the news, too. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but this is about uh, an unknown space object that's sending out radio signals that we receive here on Earth every 18 minutes. So basically, it's completely quiet and therefore invisible, right? Because all the, you know, many of those long-range space telescopes work off of listening more than seeing, right? Uh-huh. And um, they they hear this thing for about a minute, and then it disappears for 18 minutes, and then they hear it again for a minute, and it disappears for 18 minutes. Wow, that's really interesting. Yeah. 
And they, they no. first spotted this thing in March of 2018, but it's been in the news a lot lately. And they think that it might be a remnant of a collapsed star, like a, a, a huge uh, neutron star or a dead white dwarf star. Um, and basically, they, they don't know why it does this. And when they study it, they call them transients. But the transients, you know, basically they come on and they go off and disappear. But usually it turns on and off in milliseconds. But this one, the fact that it's, it's there, you're looking at it for a minute with the telescope, space telescope, and then it's gone for 18 minutes. And you're kind of looking around like, where'd that thing go? And then a minute later, it comes back. I mean, 18 minutes later, it comes back for a minute. Now... What I don't understand is they see this object. They listen to it. So like this one was picked up on what's called the Murchison Wide Field Array Telescope, which is in the outback of Western Australia. So a place where, you know, there's no other surrounding noise. And these are those big dishes, right, that you see that, that we reported on that one. Where was it, Bill? Down in Mexico? Uh, or uh, in Puerto Rico, sorry, Puerto Is that, Rico. It was that uh, Arecibo? Arecibo, yeah. Yeah, it's exactly. a radio. It, they call it a radio telescope. Exactly. They talk about them as space telescopes or an array telescope or a wide field array telescope. But it, they're, they're listening, and then they create an image based on what they're listening to. It's freaking remarkable. I mean, Oh, it's absolutely remarkable. Obviously, it's not my business. I I have very little understanding of how these things work. But for those who are involved in it, I mean, it's just a remarkable science. Uh, You know, you you listen to some of these folks talk about it, and I'm just, I'm lost when they get, their lips start moving. (laughs) But it's, yeah, yeah, no, and and I'll put up an image of this transient, uh, thing, you know, we don't really know it's a star. I could say transient star, but we don't know it's a star. Uh, but I'll put up an image of this transient. And one of the things that's cool about it, it's in the Milky Way galaxy. So it's in our galaxy and it, it's very bright in our galaxy, uh, you know, from a, from a radio stamp, radio perspective, right? So it's okay. uh, a very bright thing, and it's really quite close to us. So it's about 4,000 light years away, which, you know, in space terms is pretty close. So we got this thing out there that blasts away, uh, and we can see it via via radio waves uh, for a minute, and then it disappears for 18 minutes. And, and we discovered it back in 2018, and they're looking at it more closely now. No, but obviously... Uh, yeah, Obviously, ahead. for our listeners, if you are of the ilk or the study of these types of things, definitely chime chime in with us and fill us in on uh, uh, some of the pieces. But, Kev, is this what they call a pulsar? I don't know if it's uh, – yeah, it's it's it is uh, – could be considered a pulsar. So you'll you'll – You'll hear it described as a neutron star, and I guess right. a type of neutron star is a pulsar. So it could right. be a pulsar, but they're not really sure. You know, it's all theory because 
they've never they've never seen anything like this before. But what I was going to say before, uh, but I I went down a different rabbit hole. <laughs> uh-huh, is I'll uh-huh. post a picture of uh, the Milky Way galaxy with this object in it that's taken from the Murchison Wide Field Array Telescope uh, in Australia. And it looks like a photograph of the sky, you know, so just to give you a feel. So, you know, these radio telescopes are listening, but they create an image that would be what you would see if you were out there floating in space. So okay, it's so they're, cool. ca- they're kind of honing in uh, on the radio waves to a space and then defining what that space would be. Uh, but now, uh, uh, a neutron star is a star like our own, the sun, that at the end of its life collapsed in on itself. Is, is that correct? Do you know yeah, anything so about it's, that? It's the collapsed core of a massive what they call supergiant star. So now I don't I don't know if our sun is a supergiant star. I would guess it's not. Um but I'm just guessing. I can't remember. Mm-hmm. But I th- mm-hmm. seem to remember you know 100 years ago when I was in uh, university that it wasn't that big of a star. Mhm. Mm-hmm. Um well the thing is it's perfect for what it's accomplishing relative to us and our life and our distance from it. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, so, we, couldn't, uh, we couldn't really live on any of the other planets, uh, uh, certainly like we do here. You know what I mean? No, like it, maybe maybe someday uh, Elon Musk or somebody else is going to bring, uh, bring people to Mars, um, you know, with some of the new space travel we're, we're, uh, we're working on. And... Um, and there will be people living there, but they won't be living like they are here. Yeah, I I tell you, Kev, uh, there's nothing about that that's attractive to me. I know there are some people, there's a long list of people who want to live on Mars with this mission to Mars thing, but I'm telling you, man, uh, you know, well, you know, people are going to do what they do, but to me, that's just got death and misery written all over it. Well, you definitely have to be, you know, to me, Bill, it's similar to the folks that would set sail, you know, in the 1400s and stuff like that from the old world, as we used to call it, right, from Europe to the new world. And uh, they weren't sure what was out there, you know, and but they have a compass, you know, maybe a sextant, but had no idea what was out there. No one had ever been there and um, knew that, you know, well, they didn't know anything and they didn't know where they were when they landed. Right. Like. Right. Right. Um, well, the, the, the difference being, though, uh, they were hopeful from where they left and having some knowledge of the earth that they knew that there would be trees. They were on water that contained fish. They had some supplies, so they had some foodstuffs. Uh, they were hoping to be able to hunt when they got wherever they were going, and there would be some perhaps rivers, streams, and lakes. I mean, I know it was an unknown, but going to Mars, I mean, you're going well, to yeah. a freaking desolate place, and you, it's like dropping yourself into Mojave. 
Well, yeah, and and worse than that, I don't know if you know this, but I've been reading about it a bunch. Um, this mission to Mars that they're working on, um, you know, anyone that goes on this mission to Mars, they're never coming back. Yeah. Like, because there's no way to fuel a rocket on Mars to get it back. And there's no known way to carry enough fuel to Mars so that you could turn around and come back. So, you know, basically, if this is successful over time, they'll continue to put more and more people on Mars that'll be building uh, systems that could someday refuel a rocket to come home. But I would imagine it's going to be waves of people that live their life there and never get to come home and pass away there. Um, and then, you know, younger generations are there and working on this means to eventually come back to Earth and then do the trip again or never go back to Mars. So I, yeah. I think that's really wild. So, the you yeah. know, the people that are on the list to go there on this mission, um, they know when they're signing up that they will never return. What a bizarre thing. Man. And I think, you know, the people who went exploring... Uh, you know, using my description, you know, from the 1400s and stuff like that, exploring forward the new world, they didn't really, unless they were running away from something, you know, like pilgrims and stuff like that, Quakers looking for a better life, um, they didn't imagine that they would never go back. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And they it's, certainly, it's, I don't think they signed up to never go back. You know, you know well, yeah, no, it's, it's, it's just an incredible thing and it just, twists my brain to think about it uh if i spend any time thinking about it like the mindset of the individuals that would do such a thing yeah uh, it, cer it certainly wouldn't be me so i can't even wrap my head around it because there ain't no way no how uh that i'm thinking of strapping myself into a spaceship and going to mars you know yeah yeah, so this object, wow. you know, I'll put the images up, and you'll see it'll be like a picture of the Milky Way. You'll recognize that. And then mm -hmm. they put this, you know, just a, a clip art star in that location of where it is, but you don't actually see what it looks like, the actual thing, you know. Um, and it's interesting. So they describe it, you know, these astronomers, they say it might be the remnant of a collapsed star, you know, either a dense neutron star or a dead white dwarf star that has a very strong magnetic field, or, and this is really important, it could be something else entirely. Mm -hmm. dun, dun, dun. Yeah, which is an open-ended thought, right? Yeah, something. yeah, but it's, I just think it's cool. Remember, I, I said it at the beginning, like, this is interesting because it's uh, something that's unknown, and and in space terms, it's relatively close to us, you know, in the yep. Milky Way galaxy and four thousand light years away. And now the radio, the radio signal coming out from it every eighteen minutes, it's always the same, same. like the same, yeah, same yeah. image. That's how they know, like. Oh, there it is again. Because you can imagine these folks, like this this person that first discovered it in 2018, they're seeing it, and they're like, hey, check this out. This was never there before. And it's like, hey, Bill, come over here and look. And then Bill comes over to look. You come over to look, and you're like, there's nothing there, Kev. Yeah. And I'm like, no, the thing was just right there. You know, and then no, I go but back. This... You go get a cup of coffee. I'm looking and looking. 
Um, and then it's there again. And I'm like, hey, Bill, come back over here and look. And you come back right, and it's gone. Right. You know, and you're like, wait a minute. So this this area of the heavens had been being observed for quite some time. And suddenly this signal starts coming and then they realize it's it's coming every 18 minutes once it began. Yeah. Now, the suddenly it appears is relative, right, because we're improving the technology all the time to look and listen. So that's the frustrating part. You don't really know what's new there or what we now have the ability to see. Right. Like we just launched a couple of months ago, uh, you know, some new space telescope that's up in uh, space. Um, And, uh, you know, as far as I know, it's not functioning yet, but like that'll give us totally new images that we never had before. It'll be able to look deeper into space than we ever did before. So it'll no doubt see some things that we never saw before, but we won't know if if they were there before and we just couldn't see them or if they just appeared from somewhere else. Yeah, I'm a little... uh I'm a little bit uh, lost in some of the terminology because my limited understanding is that also a star that collapses in on itself at some point, I think, is believed to become what we call a black hole. Yeah, there's different ways for that to be created. And that's really, you know, these black holes, that's... uh, Easy to get lost uh, discussing that because basically they absorb everything around them, you know, hence the name. So they don't emit anything. And when they're looking for it, they they're, you know, the theory of them is because they look in a space and there's absolutely nothing. Right. You know, so there always should be something, I guess. And then they see this emptiness and there the theory is that because there's absolutely no energy uh uh being observed that it's somehow being absorbed into that black hole yeah and they say that uh, one of the ways they they hone in on these is that they see other objects moving towards it or even moving around it kind of like you know uh hair or soap going down the drain in the shower. They see things moving towards it. And they disappear. Yeah. And they disappear when they reach that point, I believe they call the event horizon. Right. Uh, The point of no return. You know, once you're in there, uh, you're gone. Kind of like when you walk into a Bigfoot nest and there's six of them sitting around that are nine feet tall. You went over the event horizon. That's right. <laughs> and you're the event. <laughs> you're the dinner event. Oh, hello. Come on right in. <laughs> you know, I got to tell you something. I don't even know why I'm thinking of this now. <laughs> of course, the circus is no more. The Barnum yeah, like and the Bailey yep. uh, Big Top is no more. And uh, I went to the circus Four times in my life. And all four times, the uh, main clown, not the ringmaster, but there's this main clown uh, that kind of runs the show. Yeah. All four times, that guy walked out of the center ring, came up into the stands, no matter where I was sitting, 
and pulled me out of the crowd to go down into the center <laughs> ring and do something stupid. Get out of here. Can you imagine that? Four. You never told me that. Four. That's crazy. Yeah, all four times I was there and all four times I was with Danielle. And she would be looking at me like, he's coming for you again. <laughs> and I was just like, this is freaking crazy. <laughs> like, you know, this, this circus travels all over the world. What is this guy like? Remember my face from at four times. One time I was down there and we had musical instruments. Everybody had one. I had a tuba. <laughs> and, uh, uh, you know, he would point at you when he wanted you to blow a note. You know, when I had this yeah. tuba and I'm like, <laughs> you know, and it was funny because at the time, unbeknownst to me, there was some people I knew who were in the audience who oh, later saw, saw me. Down there. Yeah, who later saw me and said, I saw you out in that metal boat. <laughs> and what is that crazy? Don't care four for four. I I can't believe it. Yeah. Hopefully you win story. uh win prize drawings with that consistency. Yeah. Yeah, come on now. <laughs> 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 True story, folks. I kid you not. All right, Bill. So what kind of account do you have for us today? Well, this is uh, really interesting. And as you know, I always say I find all of the accounts interesting. But some of them, the detail and uh, the surrounds and area knowledge is always uh, at the apex. It catches, uh, it really catches my interest. And this one was told to me by uh, Mary Stein. Uh, who told me about a sighting that she had while hiking the Merced River. She begins by saying that this trail is one of my favorite places for a short hike. Located near Coulterville, California. And I would say that it is a moderately difficult hike for someone with a good pair of legs. She goes on to say that I've probably hiked this trail more than 20 times, but I haven't been counting. There's an area where the trail takes a bend into somewhat of a canyon. This area of the trail can be kind of sketchy hiking at times, with there being a lot of rocks to walk and balance on. You could easily turn an ankle or worse if you're not careful. The trail also changes from year to year and even season to season, especially if any storms have passed through the area. It's not uncommon to come across large trees that have fallen across it or even areas that have been completely washed out by torrential rains. It's challenging, but also quite unique and beautiful. After this bend I just spoke of, you enter into what I would call a small canyon where the trail starts to ascend, and this area can get really precarious. As you ascend, you pass several watering holes and a couple of what I would call cascading waterfalls. On this portion of the trail, there are spots where one side is jagged rocks and unstable ground surfaces while the other is a steep hillside, dense with trees. 
On this particular day, we were approaching a bend where you find yourself positioned just slightly above the river. The trail there was extremely narrow, but at this junction, it was still passable, and you are tucked into this shallow canyon with hills rising up on both your right and left-hand sides. The river ahead of you disappears around this hill, but we could clearly see ahead of us for several hundred yards. At this point, there isn't much to obscure your view, with the hiking surface being comprised of flat and oddly shaped pieces of gray-colored stone scattered everywhere along both sides of the river. As the slope ascends to your left, there are all kinds of low, scrubby-looking brush covering most of it, the slope itself being very steep and likely several hundred feet or more in elevation. The point that I'm driving at and trying to make here is that if you were to hop over the river and try to make this ascent, it would take you quite a while to do so, being extremely difficult. So here we are, hiking down this stretch I just described to you, able to see hundreds of feet ahead of us. And we noticed something hunched over in the river up ahead. At this distance, all we could tell was that it was dark in color. We stopped to watch for a couple of minutes, and whatever it was stood up before quickly crouching back down again. Whatever it was, we had now seen with that simple movement that it had two legs, and from this distance it appeared to be larger than a man. My partner had already said to me that nobody would be dressed in black out here, and they definitely would not have a black hood on their head. I was in total agreement. As we started moving forward in the direction of whatever or whoever this was, it jumped up quickly and flailed around to face us. Seconds later, it took a couple of steps out of the river and passed out of our view, temporarily obscured by some trees and this brush I spoke of. No sooner had it disappeared than it reappeared out of the brush and started tearing it up the steep hillside that I just told you about. This creature, or thing, made it up the entire hillside using its arms, hands, and feet in about 30 seconds. Now remember, guys, she just said she thought this hillside was about 300 feet or so. 30 seconds. As it went over the top, it stopped, stood up, took one leisurely step, and was gone from sight. At that point, we both knew we were looking at a Bigfoot, and the encounter had left us speechless. As we walked down to where it had been in the river, we could see rocks flipped around. They were wet on both sides, 
So the Bigfoot must have been turning rocks over, searching for something in the river. We then saw the spot where it had disappeared in the brush for a moment, and based on what we had seen, we estimated that it was about eight feet tall. We then moved to the base of the slope that it had just scaled, and looking up the side of the slope, we concluded that the stamina and strength of this creature must be incredible. I stood there and wondered how long it would take for me to ascend the same slope. I could probably have climbed it in no faster than maybe 15 to 30 minutes, and I would more than likely need several wind and water breaks to do so. Its agility reminded me of the fireman's competition. You know, the one where they race up to a tower in the truck throw a long ladder up against it, and then climb the ladder as fast as they can to ring a bell. It was the fastest dash I had ever seen, and it had scaled close to 300 feet of nearly vertical terrain in about 30 seconds. I then asked Mary to focus on any details of the creature that she could recall, and this is what she told me. First of all, it's like I said before, very dark in color. When it turned towards us, we could see a face, but not with clarity that I could accurately describe any features. When it stepped out of the river, it had to quickly watch its footing on the uneven wet stones, like a human would have. So it didn't immediately leap out of our view. However, when it started to bust it up the side of this hill, its speed was unreal. Its arms were extending and retracting as fast as its legs were pumping. It was like watching an old movie when they sped up the action for laughs, virtually being a blur of movement. It didn't pause for a single second. Dirt, rocks, and pieces of brush were flying behind it like a whirlwind, a whirlwind. When one arm and one leg was extended during the climb, it had to have been 12 feet or so from hand to foot. I still walk this trail today, and I'm actually hoping to see it again. I didn't feel threatened at all. After all, it ran away from us. It was easy to see that it didn't want anything to do with people. However, that isn't to say that I'd like to be cornered by such a creature. This was a very large creature, which easily could have been a thousand pounds or more in weight. And I can personally attest that, was, that this was a life-changing experience. What do you think of that, Kev? That is wild, Bill. I'm visualizing this creature, you know, going up this hill with this, like, perpetually speedy motion. Like she said, one arm and leg reaching and pumping and then the other as fast as you could imagine it, like a blur with gravel and dust and 
crap flying behind it like a chainsaw. Yeah, and we've heard of that before, you know, where they, the creatures scale these these uh, mountainsides, hillsides, trail sides, you know, whatever, where, you know, you don't you have appreciation for how fast they're going. And then the person gets closer to the actual uh, precipice that this uh, creature went up. And you're like, oh, my goodness, I couldn't get up that thing with an extension ladder. You yeah. know, just yeah, vertical remind- and, uh, you know, thorny brush and rocks, etc. I, I like the ex- description at the end, too, when she said when it reached the precipice, in a leisurely kind of way, she describes it as just standing up and taking a step, walking away. Yeah, and this was a it's, shy one, right? Like, uh, not an aggressive one. Shy, so to speak, in that it didn't really want anything to do with her once it saw her. Yeah, no charge, no nothing. They just wanted to get away from you, and it's obviously as quick as possible. Yeah, now this so Merced uh, Trail there, I think she described it in Cooperville, California. I've been on the Merced River, Bill, in uh, Yosemite, Yosemite Canyon, and and this trail is very close to Yosemite, so it's in California, and uh, so there's a fair number of people around. I mean, it's spectacularly beautiful and rural, but you got people from all over the world coming to Yosemite. It's not like it's uh, up in British Columbia in the middle of the forest. So it's very likely this creature knows what humans are and is probably staying clear because of that. Yeah, and she said personally she had hiked this trail 20 times or more. Yeah. So it was a regular spot for her to go and just get away and stretch the legs and stomp around a little bit, you know? Yeah, and by, by the way, folks, I know a lot of people are looking at their lives differently after the pandemic and stuff like that. If you're looking to travel and see some of the national parks and stuff and you haven't gone to Yosemite, you have to go. I mean, it's so easy to access, you know, fly into Sacramento or San Francisco, drive a couple of hours, and uh, you drop into this magical valley uh, now known as Yosemite with Half Dome there and it, El Capitan, and it is like nothing you ever saw before. And the Merced River runs right through the base of the valley, so go check it out. Hike up into the upper meadows. Maybe you'll run into a hairy man, too. You know, it's funny, Kev, you mentioned uh, El Capitan uh, somewhere in the archives. Uh, you know, folks, I have to be honest with you. Uh, with the amount of accounts that I've written down, I give these accounts titles. And when I look back through my books uh, years later and the accounts, uh, I have to tell you that more times than not, when I read the title, it doesn't ring a bell with me as to what this account was about. I mean, that's the fact of the matter. You know, some things just come to me when I'm talking to people. But I definitely have no instant recall of this account or that account. There's hundreds and hundreds of them. And uh, I believe I have one from El Capitan uh, in Yosemite uh, where a couple of ladies hiking. And there were other people hiking there that day that came up behind them as they had had their sighting. 
again of a Bigfoot in some type of creek or stream. Mm. Well, we always, you know, you have lots of accounts, Bill, where they're around <laughs> rivers and stuff, right? Absolutely. Yeah. This look, Kev. I mean, it's no, uh, it's no great leap for me to tell everybody that every creature needs water. Right. And uh, some way, some shape, or form, water and food. So if you're an area resident of Yosemite, you know what's around there in different... You know, Kev, we were talking about the birds earlier today, and I told you I filled up the feeders, which I do all the time anyway. Yeah. But in particular, knowing that this uh, blizzard or snowstorm was coming, I filled them right up to the top with sunflower seeds. You know, there are times of day when these birds are all over this feeder, and then there are hours and hours where they disappear. Hmm. And, you know, who knows what they're picking on? I mean, I've seen little birds climbing up a little piece of straw, pecking on things. What are they eating? But they know everything and anything, whether it's ants on a tree or whatever this little critter pecks on. And each bird has its own things that it goes to. I would imagine the Bigfoot knows everything in its environment that's edible, whether yeah, it's well, plant. Yeah, well, I would imagine. We don't know, right? I mean, heck, we don't even know if the creature's real or not, but uh, we don't know what it is. We, we know it's not a bear, um, but I would imagine that they're territorial, too. You know, so they have a territory, and that's their area, and therefore, mm-hmm. you know, they know everything about the area, you know, where the where the good grubs are, you know, under that big rotting tree, you know, where the fish are, whatever it is. Yeah. They're eating. And each each area is unique. You know, our sister, Pat, Kev, tells me all the time that in Florida they have a lot of these little lizards or geckos and things. Oh, yeah. And she says that the wildlife around where she lives, uh, like even a great heron, would be in a bush shaking the bush and looking under the leaves, knowing that these lizards live in the bushes or hide under the leaves. There's all kinds of things, uh, birds, hawks, uh, other creatures, feasting on these lizards. Oh, that's wild. Yeah, and I would imagine if there were lizards where the Bigfoot lives, they'd just reach down and pick them up and pop them like Oreos. (laughs) (laughs) Why not? You know, I mean... It's it's a food source where they're at. You don't you know? mean twist them apart and have the cream in the center. Oh wait, that's kind of gross. Never mind. Yeah, a little a little <laughs> deviled ham, dip them in some onion dip. You know. <laughs> <laughs> Stuff them with a couple of Spanish olives. Serve oh, them as yeah. hors d'oeuvres. Now we're talking. <laughs> <laughs> hey, crazy though, huh? Coulterville, California, the Merced River. Yeah, I've rafted down the Merced, too. It's fantastic. Again, folks, if you haven't been there, I'm looking up at my wall here, and I have a picture of uh, Yosemite Falls that we camped right below, and uh, it was spectacular. i got to go back there now that, now that I think about it. <laughs> yeah, and you know, Kev, this lady, this is what I like about uh, people who call in. And by the way, uh, you know, if you've seen something, say something. You can contact us at BigfootTerrorInTheWoods.com. Go to our website, hit the contact button, 
and uh, tell me what you've seen. You know, and I talk to a lot of people. I'll call you. Uh, this lady knew enough about the area just to say briefly that it could change year to year and season to season based on what happens around it. And that was from area experience going in there and seeing the changes that occur. Yeah. So you can't beat local knowledge uh, when you're talking about people who've had a sighting. Yeah. Uh, they've, they know the area. They know what's there. And then all of a sudden, boom, Bigfoot time. And it just catches you out of left field. You know, you're like, wow, did this just happen? Yeah, yeah. Uh, I was I was listening to an old show of Art Bell's uh, just last night. And uh, Art was talking to a fellow uh, uh, who had written a book. And Art shared about uh, his experience where he saw a large triangle floating over them uh, out where he lived. And he said, first of all, I don't carry a camera around with me. It's not part of what I do when I'm out walking around. I don't have a camera strap around my neck. And at that time, there were no cell phones, uh, no Apple iPhones or anything. And then he honestly said that, you know, in that moment, even if I had a camera, I'm not certain I would have even had the wherewithal to focus it and take a picture. Uh, So, you know, he understood, as I do, having had a number of experiences, it's otherworldly when something of this magnitude happens to you. And I am, I am certain that many Bigfoot sightings are that. Are that. You're, you're trying to organize your thoughts, come to grips what it is, the thoughts come into your head, like, am I really seeing this? Am I awake? Right. Uh, and then by the time you, you go through that little checklist, it's over. Yeah. And so I can appreciate the lack of photographs or even the shaky ones where, uh, I mean, picture it happening, Kev, right? You go through this checklist and all of a sudden you're like, maybe you say to yourself, oh my God, take a picture. And you take it out, your adrenaline's going, you're probably trembling, your blood's pumping, and then you're trying to raise it up and steady it and boom, 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 the thing steps away. Oh, yeah. So I don't fault people at all. Uh, for quality of photographs or lack No, it's thereof. hard to take a picture of something. You know, in these animals, whatever animal you're taking a picture of, Bill, I had a huge hawk uh, in the tree in my backyard just a couple of days ago. I mean, one of the biggest red-tailed hawks I've ever seen. And, like, they know when you're, when you're there and you're looking at them. Like, I tried to sneak around the side of the house so I could get a picture of them. And as soon as I got there, I got the camera lined up on him, and then he took off. And I got a picture of, like, his tail and his uh, talons, which is kind of cool, you know, but he was in motion, and I missed the upper half of his body, you know. Yeah, well, you know, just like to me, Kev, just like I always say that respect your senses. If you feel something's wrong, 
get out of Dodge. Right. Right. And I, I'm sure the animals have that same sense. They sense your presence. They see you. And at some moment, they're like, I'm out of here. I don't want to know what's going to happen next. Right. right. And that hawk just flew away. Yeah. Yeah. But right. I mean, and that's like something a- that I had no fear. I wasn't surprised. I mean, I knew it was a hawk. And I was actually stalking it to take a picture of it. And yet uh-huh. I didn't get it, you know. Yep. And I'm a pretty yep. good photographer too. So it's like, but, yeah. And uh, you you were very deliberately trying to position yourself for a picture and couldn't get it. Absolutely. Yeah. Exactly. So, you know, I mean, that's and and like you say, you're not afraid of a hawk. No, I'm not nervous. Uh, you know what I mean? Right. And still, you couldn't get it. Nope. Nope. So uh, and obviously, there's plenty of hawks to see. But not up close like you were, yeah, you know. Absolutely. Well, that's interesting, though, Kip. So, what do we have in a listener mail segment? Yeah, we today? got some good listener mail. Unfortunately, uh, the letters I picked this week, most, if not all, of the folks didn't say where they're from. So, uh, folks, just tell us what state you're from. You don't have to, we're not going to come and knock on your door. Although, if we do, we just want <laughs> to borrow the telephone. <laughs> <laughs> but our first, <laughs> our first email comes in from Dave, and the subject is Port Locke, Alaska. And he says, hey, Bill and Kevin, first and foremost, really hope that your wife is doing better, Bill. I'm sorry to hear that she's been having health struggles and hope that everything takes a turn for the better soon. You've both been in my thoughts and prayers. So that's fantastic, Dave. And Bill and I thank you for praying for Paula. Uh, And then Dave goes on to write, For Kevin, I loved hearing your report about the Stanley Hotel in Estes Park, Colorado. My wife and I had done the same tour you did about a month before you went. We had a blast despite my wife's deep fear of anything paranormal. Fortunately, (laughs) a few drinks before the tour helped calm her nerves And she was a great sport for supporting my fascination with it. Um, I'm going to interject there. And by the way, if you do go on a tour at Stanley Hotel, and Dave, you know this, you just mentioned it. Boy, do they have a fantastic old-time cocktail bar in the Stanley Hotel. I mean, it feels like you walk back in time uh, when you go in there to have a drink inside the hotel. So. Uh Very cool. And then Dave goes on uh, to say, one interesting fact that I don't know if they brought up on your tour was how they overcame the Stanley Steamer's knack for catching fire due to its wooden construction. They actually recommended driving as fast as possible to have the wind (laughs) put out the flames. (laughs) I guess that was in the owner's manual, according to our tour guide. And and Dave laughs and he says, I have a feeling the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration might take issue with that resolution in today's automobiles. Faster, faster! Yeah, if your Tesla, you know, starts to go on fire, just accelerate until the fire goes out. No matter where you are. <laughs> so, you Dave know, Green- I just had a... <laughs> yeah, go ahead, Bill. I just, first of all, thank you very much for your warm wishes and your prayers for Paula. Please continue, folks, uh, to pray for my wife. 
I just had a funny thought, Kev. Uh, you know what they should do at the uh, the Stanley? <laughs> they should, <laughs> they should have adult sized big wheels <laughs> and allow people to go cruising down the hallways like that little kid in the movie. <laughs> have a couple of silhouettes flash on the wall. Of the the, the uh, two little kids that were standing there, oh, remember yeah, that? The that twins, was like the bloody creepy. twins. Yeah. Ooh. Oh my god, that was a creepy scene, boy. Yeah. So Dave get Dave does get to a question, which I love. I love the first part of your email. So don't get don't get us wrong, Dave. I, I love hearing about the tour and the Stanley Steamer too. But he says my question for both of you is about the series on Discovery Plus called Alaskan Killer Bigfoot. It follows yeah. a group of descendants of the original inhabitants of Portlock that fled after the disappearances had occurred of several villagers. I was just curious what you guys think about the show or if you'd seen it. I hadn't heard any mention of it on the podcast yet. Thanks again for all the hard work you guys put into the show. It's definitely a highlight of my week when your new episodes come out. Best to both of you and take good care. Dave. So yeah, Dave, we uh, we actually did an episode on Portlock. Uh, you may not have gotten to it yet. Uh, the phenomena of everything that happened up at Portlock, and through the years, we have talked about that Discovery show. We saw it, I guess, Bill, when it was first on. It seems like a year or so ago, uh, and I thought it was super cool. Like, and certainly. Um, you know, that area of Alaska, super rural, when they were hiking around in the hills there looking for this creature, not hard to believe that, uh, you know, the hairy man would be living there and roaming around. Yeah, uh, I've seen every episode on uh, Discovery Plus. Uh, now, here's the thing. I believe 110% uh everything about the initial portlock uh village and uh the departure of the people the deaths uh the way these people were found uh floating in the water uh the missing hunters over 30 people died 14 missing hunters uh there was definitely something going on there with a killer Bigfoot. They called it Nanatuck or something like that, Nanutuck. When we go to the Alaskan killer Bigfoot, the story is that they want to re-inhabit or reinvigorate the area so that their community can expand, make some more money, uh, reopen a cannery. You know, it's all about the advancement of these people and their finances, a better way of life. Yep. But as you watch the episodes, look, I'm from New York. All right. I'm a different kind of cat than somebody who lives up in Alaska, but it's hard for me to get over, uh, the way the people speak, their actions, their lack of energy or enthusiasm, it's a very dry kind of group of people doing the show out there. Uh, they talk very monotone. 
you know, hey, let's go over here, Louie. Oh, let's get out of here. Let's go over there. Let's get out of here. So that portion of it is kind of dry. I do still believe that there is something going on there, and I'm trying not to let my mind get in the way of uh, a film crew trying to dramatize something or uh, make film that's worth looking at. You know what I'm saying, Kev? Oh, yeah. I mean, I have the problem with all of those series, you know, where, you know, like you're sitting there and you want to think they're going to like it's going to come to a conclusion and they're going to see the creature at the end. But, you know, there's 10 more episodes, you know. Yeah. So and they're the, not going the let, to. You know, you want it's fun and entertaining, but, you, you know, they're not going to find it that week. Right. Well, you know, the last episode... Uh, they bring some family members up in another boat, and it's kind of like it starts out like all is well. This guy had come in to do some type of exorcism of the property. He w- he had a fog machine with some type of concoction in it that was supposed to disperse evil spirits. And the guys are walking around and with the children and different stuff going to the areas where there were problems and nothing was going on. Everybody's saying it, it feels much more peaceful. And then when they're leaving the Island, the little shack that they built is in flames. And one guy says to the other one, did you leave it? No, I checked everything. There was nothing left burning there, blah, blah, blah. And it falls back to the fact that it was reported that Portlock had burnt, uh, or maybe the canning factory had burnt down a couple of times while those people were there. Like these spontaneous fires would start up and burn buildings down that nobody like started, like they were happening, but nobody knew how. So that was the last episode. Their, their shack is burning as they're a half a mile you. out on the water. Okay. I think I missed, I must have missed that last episode. It's too yeah. bad. I thought they were going to find him in that episode. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, you know, I Kev, I think this is going to be continued. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And uh, where is it going? I don't know. But the initial Portlock story... Yeah, it's fantastic. Uh, and the witnesses uh, was just incredible. Fantastic, uh, yeah. Yeah, so that's that. Cool, man. Well, thanks, Dave, for writing in, and thanks again for the prayers, too. All right, our next one comes in from Lisa. Lisa, again, doesn't tell us where she is. Perhaps she's afraid we'll knock on the door, <laughs> and she'll see the black-eyed children in her ring doorbell. <laughs> I just want to borrow a cup of sugar. Yes, nothing to worry about. Just open the door. <laughs> <laughs> so she, her subject is strange tracks and prints. And she says, hello, I have a question about prints or tracks that I've seen several times online and on different television shows about strange phenomena. We all know what a Bigfoot-casted footprint looks like. My question is, if either of you have seen the odd three-toed print 
that look that was discovered in the 60s and more recently as well. It's very large and almost looks like it could have been made by a giant bird or reptile. It has three yeah. toes, or maybe they're talons, but they're huge. I'd hate yeah. to see what made them. You know the old saying, I want to see one until I see one. Yeah. <laughs> and she yeah. says, thanks for making this great podcast week after week. Keep up the great work. I love that, Bill. I want to see one until I see one. Yeah, be careful what you wish for. <laughs> so what do you think of these three-toed beasts? It's it's an anomaly, Kev. You know, some people say that the dog man. That's what I was thinking. Yeah, yeah, leaves leaves an odd track. Uh, you know, what we're just speculating, right? What do I think about it? I yeah. haven't seen one. Uh, I have my uh, buddy up in Alberta, the hunter, uh, and I told a while ago of his finding this deer on fresh fallen snow that had been torn apart and uh, no tracks leading in, no tracks leading out. And he had some type of odd large print of something that apparently had been moving around the deer. But his point was, where did it go? It could only drop down, say, from a tree or fly in and then leap back up and fly out. If if there's fresh fallen snow on the ground, there's no tracks coming in or out. He's the only guy there in this freaking wilderness. Here's this deer torn apart with no snow on the body. Obviously, it had just been torn apart recently after the snow had stopped. And here are these strange tracks. Now, he had said... He thought it was a griffin. <laughs> you know, you know those giant mythological, yeah, half birds? half lion, half bird, or whatever, right? Yeah, I mean, I mean that's as bizarre as anything else. You know, yeah. a griffin. But you know, I'm I'm not going to argue with anybody. I wasn't there, and none of us saw it. So. Yeah. And now she's asking about these prints. What do you think about it? Jeez, I, yeah, the first thing I, I thought of was Dogman, you know, because that's Dogman has that like reverse bending leg, too, you know, where the knee's kind of in the back of the leg, like a canine. Um, yeah, it's weird. Yeah, but yeah, weird stuff. I don't, I don't now, know. Let us know, folks, now, if you know anything about these tri toed prints. I do uh, I do have an account of some fellas in Louisiana. Uh, again, we'll get to that someday. Uh, where they found, not only did they see the dog man, but uh, there were prints, these tri-toed prints with some type of claw. Yeah. Also. So, I don't know, man. You know, they call it down there the Rougarou. Rougarou. A little shapeshifter. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so that's a weird, weird phenomenon, man. But thanks for chiming in with, with us. Uh, with some gumbo, please. Oh, sorry. <laughs> and a shrimp po' boy. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Bill. Well, that's the last of our letters this week. Great podcast. Thanks for tuning in, folks. And thanks for all those positive reviews you leave us. Please leave us a five-star review. 
it is virtually the only way we have of attracting new listeners to the podcast. And by getting new listeners, we can stay on schedule and keep improving the quality of the podcast. And Lord knows, if you were with us in the beginning, believe it or not, we have greatly improved the quality of the podcast. <laughs> Fantastic. You have a good spot, too, on that uh, uh, radio telescope picking up on that uh, object, sending out signals every 18 minutes. Yeah, and I'll put, I'll put the uh, picture up there under this episode, episode 135. Go to the episodes, look at 135, and you'll see a picture of it from that radio telescope, telescope in Australia. Oh, see. And by the way, folks, if you should find yourself hiking in Coulterville, California, along the Merced River or anywhere else. Or perhaps you find yourself looking down at some large three-toed footprints fresh in the soil. My advice to you is this. Always carry more gun than you think you're going to need. Sleep tight. <laughs>